Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We will pick up about halfway through verse 21 and Lord willing, we will complete the 11th chapter this morning. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles... Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So we're in the middle of what many scholars refer to as Paul's fool's speech, a section in which he employs boasting, so loathsome to him, but he employs boasting to answer the charges of the false teachers, men who had wormed their way into the church there, a church that Paul started, the church at Corinth. And these pseudo-apostles, these intruders as it were, have made up a standard for what successful ministry looks like, and then they met that standard, and they considered themselves to be faithful. Notice chapter 10, verse 12. Paul writes, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Again, Paul is describing the approach of the false teachers in Corinth in their evaluating their own ministry here. Uh, Of course, they, they believed they were the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the elect of the elect, the elite above all else, the superior... How did Paul measure in their eyes? The true apostle. Here's how he measured in their eyes. Verse 10, in chapter 10, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech of no account. So to these false teachers, by their standards that they have created, Paul was a dismal failure and no apostle at all. They looked the part, they sounded the part, while Paul's bodily presence was weak and his speech of no account. They boasted of being true apostles, authorized apostles, knowledgeable apostles, even above Paul. Really, they were just challenging Paul for his position of influence in the church at Corinth. And the Corinthian church was beginning to be won over, at least a significant number of people there, enough that Paul wrote four chapters addressing this issue. 
Well, what did Paul think about these false teachers? We, we've learned what they thought of him. What did he think about them? Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. He, he's not pulling any punches. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, they're claiming to be apostles. We're really apostles. They're claiming to be. He said, I'm undermining them. I seek to undo them. He goes on. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. And let me just remind you, all Scripture is breathed out by God, so this is not merely Paul's assessment of these false teachers. This is God's evaluation of them. They were, in fact, servants of Satan himself. False teachers, false apostles, peddlers of God's Word. Paul calls them back in chapter 2. They were frauds. They were prideful, arrogant. According to Paul in verse 18 of chapter 11, they boasted according to the flesh, the way the world boasts. John MacArthur says they were obsessed with their own importance. Yeah, that's exactly what they were. And in doing so, they had fleeced these saints. They had grown their financial portfolio. They'd gotten rich. And so, though Paul hated self-commendation, he hated boasting, he's got to employ it to fight these men. It's it seemingly all these saints would listen to. And though Paul argues in what he describes as a worldly manner, he continues to denote it as fool's speech all the way through this section. Thus the reason that many people refer to this as the fool's speech. The title of this passage or, or this sermon is Hardships and Weakness. Hardships and weakness. In this text, Paul does in fact boast. But unlike his opponents, he boasts of things few in ministry would ever boast about. Now let's just jump into this then. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Okay, so these, these false teachers were boastful braggarts, men who saw themselves as superior in every way to others, even other believers in Christ. Listen, I adamantly oppose the false teaching that gets passed off today as biblical teaching. It doesn't matter to me what the sign out in front of the church says. I oppose heresy, but... Let us never forget that we were purchased off sin slave market by the same blood that every other child of God has been purchased with. We are complete in Christ alone. And if anybody outside of this church is complete, they are complete the same exact way that we are. Listen, if we forget that, we are more like these false teachers than we want to believe. We're very much unlike Paul. That much is certain. So these guys had set a standard for faithfulness. They dressed the part. They sounded the part. They declared themselves to be elite. They expected people to accept that. They met their own standard. But I have no doubt that these men presented themselves well. They were eloquent speakers. I am certain but they were eloquently preaching another Jesus. They were eloquently preaching a different gospel. It didn't matter how nice the PowerPoint was. The presentation doesn't matter if you're spewing heresy. And yet these immature Corinthian believers were looking at the outside of the package. This false standard that had been set up. And they did not take the time to look at what was on the 
the inside, the, the false gospel that was being promoted, and that from unredeemed men, according to the Apostle Paul. So Paul's hand is forced. He, he has to boast. He hates it. And so he adds that little phrase right there that says, I am speaking as a fool. He is playing their game. Paul is going to employ their faulty method of judgment, and though he detests it, he's going to beat them at their own game. He is. Now these men were clearly Jews. Probably they were Palestinian Jews. We'll talk about that in a second. They were proud of their pedigree, and they saw that as a point to be prideful. I know that. Look, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So obviously, we are Hebrews. We are Israelites. We are the very offspring of Abraham. That had to be words that they were actually saying. These were their bragging rights, so to speak. And somehow they felt that this gave them a greater authority. And let me be frank. There is a real sense in which we are beneficiaries of God's work through Israel. I mean, that's, that's certainly true. Romans 9, Paul says of them, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So, the Savior Himself came into this world as a Jew. Their long-awaited, messianic, Davidic king. Not only that, it was through an entirely Jewish church, the church at Jerusalem, that God chose to spread the gospel to the nations, to the Gentile nations. So we are, in a sense, indebted to the nation of Israel and what God has done through them. I, there's no question there. And even eschatologically, at least in my, my view, there is this coming kingdom which Jesus, in which Jesus is going to reign from David's throne, from Jerusalem, over the world, and truth will flow from Christ to the world from there. But listen, that does not mean Gentiles are common and unclean and the Jews are perfectly clean. It does not mean that Jews are superior to Gentiles based on their bloodline or some other personal merit. And it absolutely does not validate a false teacher. That's what's going on here. Now, all that said, you've got to wonder why these false teachers thought this would make them superior of all people to Paul. The only thing I can come up with is that they must have been Palestinian Jews. In other words, they lived in the land, probably near Jerusalem, while Paul's hometown, we know this, was Tarsus. It was located in Asia Minor. It was a city in eastern Cilicia, so he lived outside of Israel. Nevertheless, his pedigree was absolutely unmatched. We know that. Paul wrote, listen to this. Philippians 3. Here's what Paul wrote. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Paul was a faithful Jew. Though he did follow that up by saying, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, uh, that's important, but we're not preaching Philippians 3 today. Look, Paul, Paul's pedigree was, was unmatched. His, his time as a Pharisee was devout, way beyond most Jews of his day. Paul was a died-in-the-wool Jew 
far more committed than most in his generations. He even says in Galatians, quote, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for their traditions of my fathers. Look, Paul was a Jew of Jews. Like he was the cream of the crop. One had to believe that these false teachers began rethinking this particular, you know, brag when Paul lays his cards on the table, right? Now really quickly before we move on, let me see if I can explain these three terms. There's actually two approaches that commentators have on this. First, it's very possible that these three terms, Hebrews, Israelites, and offspring of Abraham, are just synonymous. And by stating one after another, Paul is just building his argument, making this weightier and weightier. It's like dominoes falling over. Though, some commentators believe there is a slight difference here, and here's how they would explain it. Hebrew speaks of pedigree, the, the, the purity of his line. These, these men, these false teachers, and Paul too for that matter, they were not half-Jews. They didn't have a Gentile father like Timothy. They were, they were full-blooded Jewish. They were purebreds. It may also have included the fact that they were not Hellenistic. In other words, they were not Greek-speaking Jews. Now look, Paul certainly spoke Greek. We know that. But we will also learn in Acts that he spoke Hebrew fluently which he most certainly learned at a very young age in a Hebrew home. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that, that may be what Hebrews means. Israelites probably pointed more to the religion of the Jews, while offspring of Abraham may connect them with the promises contained in the covenants given to Israel. It really doesn't matter if we know those things. Whatever these terms mean, these pseudo-apostles were using these designations to throw around some type of supposed authority that they had over these Gentile believers in Corinth. They even believed they were superior to Paul. But Paul says they aren't. Are they Hebrews? Paul writes, so am I. Are they Israelites? Paul writes, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Paul writes, so am I. There, there, there is no superiority here, even in this faulty standard. Paul's even got them beat, you see. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Paul says, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Now let me be clear, these false teachers are absolutely not servants of Christ. Paul is not in any way endorsing them as servants of Christ here. I think he was clear, we read earlier, in saying that they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of light. They are Satan's minions. That's what Paul says. This servants of Christ was their claim. They said, we are servants of Christ. Paul is merely answering their claim. He's already stated what he really thought earlier. And so they claim... They were servants of Christ. Paul says, I am a better one. But not without adding, I am talking like a madman. Paul does not like this. This is not his way. Again, all, all through this section, Paul offers these reminders that he does not like all of this boasting. He detests it. He does not want to play the part of a braggart. They have forced him to play these games. Now these men probably bragged about things like you know, their speaking ability, the way they carried themselves, their dress, no doubt, the, the size of the crowds that they drew when people knew they come to town, the money they received, maybe the baptisms they performed, who knows? D.A. Carson writes, in speaking of Paul's answer, 
He writes this, quote, We might imagine Paul saying something like this, I have established more churches. I have preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I have traveled more miles. I have won more converts. I have written more books. I have raised more money. I have dominated more councils. I have walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I have commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. End quote. All of that would actually be true if Paul said that. But that's not at all where he goes. The triumphalistic attitude of these false teachers, that they were better than everybody else I mean. They thought in their mind those type things made them elite, better than the rest. So, rather than boasting in those things, Paul chooses to boast in his hardships. This is the way to get a pastoral job, right? I've had it rough. Nevertheless, that's what Paul does. Notice, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Most of this is going to be explained as we work our way through the rest of the text. But but let me just say this. Luke, in the book of Acts, only gives us a snapshot of Paul's ministry. We in no way have everything written down for us. Far more happened than what we have. For instance, when Paul wrote this letter, not all of Acts was history at this point. We are actually around Acts chapter 20 when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. That means only one imprisonment in Acts happened that Luke wrote down that we know of at this time. the imprisonment in Philippi when the Philippian jailer was saved back in Acts 16. And yet here, Paul said he had suffered far more imprisonments than the false teachers. So we know that Luke doesn't give us everything. There were other times that Paul got arrested and we don't, we don't know about it. For what it's worth, an early Christian writer uh, by the name of Clement, he wrote near the, the end of the first century, he says Paul was actually imprisoned seven times. I don't know how he knows that. I don't know if it's accurate. I'm just sharing it with you. You can, you can Google his stuff and, and find it yourself. First Clement 5, verse 6, if you'd like to read it. Anyway, let's see how Paul elaborates. Verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not long before Paul began ministry, Augustus Caesar wrote a famous eulogy in his own honor. (laughs) Not uncommon for Caesar's. And he listed all of his accomplishments. He was very careful to include numbers. Five times I did this. Three times I did this. Once I did this. Seven times I did this. It's really long. It's called the res gete. And it's inscribed in all monuments throughout the Roman Empire, including Corinth. So it was there when Paul wrote these words. Many commentators believe that Paul actually takes Caesar's words and he makes a parody of them. Of course, the difference is while Caesar was bragging on himself, Paul is here talking about his hardships. Caesar says, five times I did this great thing, three times I did this great thing, one time I did this. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. It's it's sort of a parody. That may not be so, but it's very possible. Anyway, these 40 lashes less one was the official punishment of the synagogue in Paul's day. It was actually mandated in the Old Covenant law, Deuteronomy 25 verses 1 through 3, and it limits the number of lashes that a person can receive to 40. Now, it didn't have to be 40. It could be less than 40 if it was a, a minor crime. But 40 was the maximum that any person could receive under the Mosaic Code. Now, Paul says he received 39. 
But don't get in your mind, there must have been worse stuff. Paul didn't get the maximum 40. No, he got the maximum. This is all they were giving at this time. There's actually a couple of reasons why this may be true. Uh, First, and this certainly makes sense, knowing the Jews in the Gospels, the Jews fenced the law. In other words, if the law said don't go a mile, they would say, well, let's just... Let's just not go but about three-quarters of a mile, and then we know we hadn't gone a mile. In this day, they apparently only gave 39 just in case somebody miscounted. So they didn't give 40. This fencing of the law was extremely common in this day. But there's another option. It's pretty well documented in history that they they used a triple-stranded whip had three whips on the end of it. So every time you whip someone, they got three stripes. Well, 39 is easily divisible by three. 13 strokes of the whip and you're, you're done. You don't have to stand there and do all of the rest of it. Well, that, that certainly makes sense. Whatever the reason, amazingly, none of these floggings at the hands of the Jews are recorded in the book of Acts. None of them. And yet we know that it happened. This inspired. This happened. Just for the record, by the way, Paul probably could have saved himself some of these floggings if he was willing to be banished from the synagogue. Think about that. He could have stopped it if he had just accepted banishment. But he willingly took it so that he could continue to visit and share with his countrymen the gospel, that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. Listen, the love that Paul had for the lost, specifically for his own countrymen, is unparalleled. I think I'd have just been banished. Three times, Paul says, he was beaten with rods. This is the Roman equivalent of the 39 stripes. Luke only records one of these. It's in Acts 16, verses 22 and 23. But it happened, at this point, it had already happened three times, Paul says. Once I was stoned, Luke does record this. This is in Lystra. You can find it in Acts 14. That stoning there, though, was not a legally mandated stoning by the Sanhedrin. If it had been, Paul probably would have been killed because there would have been the equivalent of a coroner standing there to make sure he was dead. That's not what went on in Acts 14. In Acts 14, it was the work of an angry mob who just started throwing rocks and Paul was able to, by God's providence and God's grace, Paul was able to escape. Perhaps you're beginning to see a little bit more why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. There's no way you couldn't see some of this. Verse 25, he says, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Three times, Paul says, he was shipwrecked. The book of Acts only records one shipwreck. We haven't gotten there yet. That's in chapter 27. That means none of these three are recorded for us in the book of Acts. Look, we take modern travel for granted. Traveling by ship was extremely dangerous in Paul's day, especially if you didn't have the money to ride on the best ships, which I'm sure Paul didn't. It was so dangerous, by the way, in Paul's day that Plutarch, he, he, was a, he was a Greek philosopher, lived around this time. Here's what he wrote, quote, As for me, I would be amazed to see a skipper live to an old age, end quote. That's how dangerous traveling by ship was in Paul's day. Well, sometime during Paul's ministry before Acts 20, he suffered three shipwrecks. 
And one of them was apparently so far out from shore that he spent a night and a day adrift at sea. I'm not real interested in getting on an airplane that I feel like this kind of going to go down, right? And yet Paul, for the sake of the gospel, continued to sail. <laughs> he gets a little more general. He says on frequent journeys. He, he, was, he was always on the go. In danger from rivers. Remember, by the way, back at this time, rivers were not controlled by a lock and dam system like they are today. They would, they would often overflow their banks. They would become dangerous. Danger from robbers. This was a widespread issue in the ancient world, especially for those traveling on frequent journeys like Paul. Danger from my own people, the Jews. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Paul could easily be spotted in the city by those who were seeking his life, seeking to arrest him. And if he fled out of the city, there were danger in the wilderness from wild animals, the environment, maybe those bandits. Danger at sea. He's already mentioned several shipwrecks, but people died on ships for other reasons. There were other dangers associated with being on a boat. Listen, everywhere Paul went... He faced danger. There was a target on his back all the time. And not only from the people opposing the gospel. Some of these robbers didn't care. They just wanted his money. Then notice what he says. Danger from false brothers. The kind that had weaseled their way into the church at Corinth. And yet here Paul is writing to a church that was harboring some of these false brothers that had endangered him. This was a blow to this church. And it was intended to be a blow. Paul is telling them, you're harboring some of the people that have given me a lot of trouble. He goes on. He says, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, working in the day, doing ministry at night, or whatever, vice versa. Look, Paul suffered. The gospel ministry was important to him. He was not laying up treasures on earth. That was not Paul's goal. As Paul puts Todd to shame. I will admit that. He says, in hunger and thirst, often without food. Listen, the ends simply did not always meet. For Paul. He went without in order to share the gospel with people who had not heard it. He was affected by the elements in cold and exposure, he said. Listen, if our internet is out, I got Wendy on the phone talking to Spectrum and I want her to fix it yesterday. Pretty, it's embarrassing. It should be. This was Paul's list of commendations, right? This, this is his list of I got you beat right here. Not accomplishments, though. Hardships. Then notice what he says in verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? There were other things Paul could have said. This is a shortened list, apart from other things. But he stopped and he said, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Everything else he's listed up to this point is external. This is internal. Paul had anxiety for those that he had ministered to. And not only churches... Uh, not only the church at Corinth, but all the churches, he said. And not only the churches that Paul established either. He wrote uh, a letter to the saints in Rome. He didn't know those folks. He wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. He didn't know those folks. He knew some of them, but he didn't know most of them. He didn't establish that church. Nevertheless, Corinth caused Paul a lot of anxiety. And they were to realize that. 
But Paul was not worried about himself. He's not violating what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, don't worry. That's, he's not worried for himself, his life, or whatever. He's putting his life on the line. No, Paul's concern was the saints at Corinth and the other churches. Their fragility, their immaturity, their tendency to entertain false teachers, their lack of growth and everything else that goes along with ministry. And Paul was empathetic with their problems. He says, who is weak and I'm not weak? He felt it. Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Look, Paul did not want to see saints fall and he didn't want to see other saints causing saints to fall. Paul was a pastor at heart. He was appointed to be an apostle, but he had a pastor's heart. He cared about people when they hurt. His pastoring is a painful job at times. Paul felt it. Now in this last section, verses 30 through 33, he takes sort of, a, sort of an interesting turn here. Look at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now Paul is discussing an event that we recently studied in our study of Acts. Jacob preached that sermon. It's in Acts chapter 9. But that was Luke's version of the events. This is Paul's version. They don't contradict, don't misunderstand, but we get a completely different side. Now you may recall in Acts 9, Luke, Luke records the miraculous conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. There is somewhere in Acts 9 a three-year time period. Brian mentioned that earlier. And before the chapter closes, Paul escapes Damascus by the skin of his teeth. That's all in Acts 9. And before we get into the specifics of it, Notice Paul says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now let me, just, let me just remind you, this is a Herculean society. Quite literally, they worshipped the pagan god Hercules. Strength was far more respected in Corinth than even the redneck southeastern United States Bible Belt. Remember what happened every other year in Corinth. The Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games. In fact, the most prestigious public position in Corinth is said not to have been the governor or the mayor or any other city official, but to have been the president of the Games. It was to these people, infatuated with strength and athletic ability, the Herculean man, it was to these people that Paul boasts of his weakness. He tells of a time that a, a Gentile ruler, King Aretas, had worked through the governor under him in coordination with the Jews. Luke tells us that in Acts 9. In an attempt to seize Paul. I don't, I don't have time to get into the timeline, but again, there was this period of time spent in Arabia, a three-year period, somewhere in Acts 9, and probably during that time, Paul was not only learning, he was preaching the gospel, and he apparently ticked off this ruler because of that. That's conjecture on my part, I will admit. It is an educated guess, but it is conjecture. Anyway, just looking at Luke's narrative, when you read through Acts 9... Paul was headed to Damascus to arrest Christians, to try to kill them. He left Jerusalem, headed for Damascus as a highly well-educated, uh, highly respected Pharisee, unmatched in his zeal for Judaism, doing what he thought to be for the truth of God. And he left that town as a believer in Jesus, persecuted, 
and humiliated. Surely most in that day would have expected Paul to stand toe-to-toe with those seeking his life, battle to them intellectually, preach to them the truth, arguing doctrine after doctrine, and that's not at all what we find. And in a moment, Paul labels weakness. This formerly highly respected rabbi escaped by the hair of his head in what many commentators believe was a stinking fish basket. It's humiliating. H.A. Ironside writes, quote, Paul tells of something that most of us would have left out. End quote. Gary Miller writes, quote, Paul moves on to what was not exactly his finest hour. End quote. Again, this is Paul's commentary on what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 9. This is not a bold brag on Paul's part. This is to show his weakness. He's very clear. You know, when we read Acts 9, it looks like this bold escape. Oh, man. He was... He was lowered down in a basket down the city wall. This is like, like Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. That's not how Paul remembered it. Paul saw this as an embarrassing, shameful event. A time that his weakness was on display for all to see. And then God inspired Luke to record it forever. Here's how D.A. Carson put it, quote, This toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, lowered like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly gargo he had displaced, end quote. Amen. Heavy. Carson went on to write, quote, Probably it was the event that shattered whatever residual pride still lurked in the proud heart of Saul the Pharisee. End quote. Maybe he's right, I don't know. Makes sense. It's obviously something that Paul remembered vividly. This information about this escape from Damascus it, it ends the catalog of hardships and weaknesses, but it, but it also sort of introduces the next section. And in that section, Paul is going to explain how God's strength is actually perfected in our weaknesses. You see, you see how this fits then, but I can't get into that today. We've already said a lot. Are, are you thankful for the life of the Apostle Paul? A man so committed to the gospel of Christ that he endured all of these hardships to get the message of the cross to the ends of the worlds, to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's, that's us, you know. And by the way, can we just stop claiming that we're persecuted? Just because somebody preaches something we don't agree with, that's not persecution. If somebody fails to Put a heart on your social media post? That's not persecution. Listen, we've had the easy life. Far different than most Christians throughout church history and far different from the Apostle Paul. We are not persecuted. Let us stop saying that until it actually happens. And while I'm on it, I simply do not know what the prosperity preachers do with this passage. I, I really don't. I have nothing. I tried to think, how could they twist this to fit their system? And I just completely drew a blank. It seems obvious to me that if they were in this debate with, between Paul and the false teachers, they clearly are siding with the false teachers against Paul. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is precisely what we see in the life of Paul. Displayed in this catalog of suffering that we've looked at this morning. 
We are simply not promised prosperity in this life. Unless you mean spiritual wealth. We are that in Christ. But not the prosperity being preached by those in the prosperity gospel movement. And listen, being complete in Christ before God is worth far more than anything. Anything. So if you engage with a person committed to the prosperity system, the idea that becoming a Christian means good health and great wealth, read this passage to them. Penned by the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 New Testament books and dare them to argue with him. It just doesn't take a scholar to see the big hole this section punches and leaves right in the middle of the prosperity gospel movement. I mean, it's just clear to me. You've got to wonder if they've just ripped this page out of their Bibles. Let us make sure that we judge faithfulness in ministry by the right standard, not by a, a man-made standard. You know, I, fear, I fear really that many churches today struggle to find faithful pastors because they're requiring things the Bible doesn't and ignoring things that the Bible actually says. Now, before I say all that, let me, let me say, I, I'm very much for education. I wish I had more education. Let me be crystal clear. I am not anti-education. I'm glad that Blake has an education. Somebody here sure needs to be a real scholar, not just a self-appointed scholar. But I'll take a, a pastor that didn't finish high school over a seminary-degreed heretic any day of the week. Okay, enough on that. Guys, if we are going to be like Paul, who lived like Jesus, by the way, if we're going to be like Paul, we will devote our lives to promoting Jesus, not us. I realize that does not sound very American. It doesn't sound very capitalistic. Nevertheless, it is our directive. Preach the gospel. Be witnesses of Jesus, not ourselves. This is, this is not tough, really. If, if we're more focused on promoting ourselves and our tribe, this actually comes very easy to us. We like to promote ourselves. If we're not careful, we'll be on the side of the false teachers who are in this war of words with the Apostle Paul who were promoting themselves while Paul was preaching Jesus. Now listen, I am not in any way suggesting that we ought to then just take all of our doctrine and just throw it out the window. Like you can't listen to my preaching and think I believe that. I do not believe that whatsoever. In fact, if we're going to preach Jesus, our doctrine better be right or we're going to be preaching a wrong Jesus. But at the end of the day, we better make dead level certain we've not wandered off that path and begun promoting ourselves rather than Jesus. It's just so natural for us. These men trusted their pedigree more than they trusted the truth. And they were the opponents of God. Paul trusted and preached the truth. All right, let's close it out. This won't, this won't take too long. I want to ask you this question. Why did Paul argue this way? Just because he hated boasting? Well, I mean, he did hate boasting, but why is he arguing this way? I mean, why didn't he, why didn't he boast about the various places he'd preached, the churches he'd started, the Scripture God had used him to pen? Certainly he knew it was Scripture. He's the one that wrote all Scriptures breathed out by God. I mean, Paul knew Here's what Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. End quote. That's the mark of being apostle. Paul's list, his, his catalog of hardships, it actually validated his apostleship. Listen, it's either Paul or the false teachers. It's not both. 
And when you look at what Jesus said, Paul's boasting in his suffering makes a lot more sense. He fits that category of Matthew 23 who's being persecuted from town to town, being flogged in the synagogues. That's Paul, not the false teacher. The easy life of these false teachers, the wealth they were fleecing from the saints, it didn't line up at all with what Jesus had said. There's more coming of problems with the false teachers, but we, we won't get into that today. Look back really quickly at chapter 4. Let me show you something. I just want to remind you of something. I'm not going to re-preach this passage. But if you're like me, you've probably forgotten a bit of this. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Look, Paul knew he was just a clay pot. A common piece of pottery. I, I tell you when I preach that passage, much like our modern day plastic grocery bag. That's what he means here. We are nothing great. Amen, somebody. But we have a great Savior. We are just beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. We live, as long as God gives us breath, we live to display the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. And we do so all the while realizing that we are just the clay pot. And Christ is the treasure. Once we make ourselves and our tribe the treasure, we have distorted the gospel. Look, there's a ton of richness in this section. But there's also warning. We need to heed it. We need to make sure, like Paul, that our message is the truth of the gospel and that we are telling people, lost men and women, that the only completeness before God is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Stand with me, if you will.